Good afternoon and welcome to Driving Continuous Delivery with Value Stream Management, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Testop. Just a little bit of housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we'll take them later in the program. And we'll have a little one-question audience poll later on. A nice way to view the screen, click on the top center, get it in side-by-side -side mode, then you can adjust the divider to get the video boxes and the slides the size you want them and it should say speaker view in the top right hand corner just so you see how we're going to spend our time today we're going to go about 35 or 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring mike restucci svp and cio at penn medicine neil ganguly vp of it at hackensack meridian health and mick kirsten founder and ceo with test top so let's jump right in Mike, let's start with you. Can we get an overview of your organization and your role? Thank you, Anthony, and good afternoon to everyone. Sure, I'm Mike Restuccia, Senior Vice President, CIO of Penn Medicine. Penn Medicine is the integration of our health system, the University of Pennsylvania Health System, along with our Perlman School of Medicine. Uh, so we're positioned well to integrate those discoveries and advancements in research into our delivery of care, patient care systems uh, within our hospitals and ambulatory clinics. So thanks for having me. All right, thanks, Mike. Neil? I'm Neil Ganguly. I'm the Vice President of IT at Hackensack Meridian Health. I'm a member of the IT Senior Leadership Team. Uh, my specific responsibilities are over our IT PMO, our IT intake process, and our IT uh, hospital site managers. Uh, Hackensack Meridian itself is uh, one of the largest health systems in New Jersey. We've got 17 hospitals, over, uh, excuse me, over nine campuses and uh, 500 ambulatory care locations around the state, as well as the full range of other uh, healthcare services from behavioral health through uh, long-term care and ambulance services, fitness centers, et cetera. And then on top of that, we have a relatively new medical school and uh, a research division uh, that's all uh, just sort of under three or four years old. And Hackensack Meridian itself is really just under five years old. So a relatively new health system that's come together and is, is rapidly growing. Very good. Thanks, Neil. Mick? So I'm Mick Kirsten, I'm the founder and CEO of Tastop and the author of the Project to Product book, which was one of the books defining this new discipline of value stream management, uh, which I think we'll be talking about some today. And yeah, I've worked very closely with uh, senior leaders in healthcare organizations who are undergoing digital transformation. So we're more and more of the care that will be experienced actually that uh, comes from digital offerings, in addition to, uh, of course, all the systems and operations that are being run. So yeah, uh, very, have, very excited about, about this topic on how we basically accelerate transformation and innovation around digital and software in healthcare. So. Excellent. All right, uh, Neil, let's start with you. Where do requests for improving your software come from and what are the formal mechanisms? So for us, the requests can really come from a range of different sources uh, for large or strategic kind of projects. They come through our planning process, the organizational business planning process, uh, and then they come through into our IT intake process for evaluation prioritization. Things that are underneath that level, sort of the, the mid-size to smaller size kind of initiatives can come from our sites through our IT site managers or directly through our application teams uh, in, in more of an organic fashion. Those kind of things come through often you know, meetings or planning meetings that are held at those various levels. And ultimately, though, all of that filters through into our IT intake process for evaluation and prioritization. Okay, very good. Mike? Uh, similarly, uh, we utilize our project management office to be that central point for all intake of projects, projects defined as estimated to be 80 hours or more in effort 
combined effort uh, amongst the teams. Uh, but as we know, there are many, many requests that come in that are less than 80 hours. And we call those uh, service requests. And service requests can go right directly to a director level individual uh, on our team uh, and then be prioritized and uh, addressed accordingly. But those two mechanisms, larger scale, as, as mentioned, the, the planning process drives projects. Projects come in through the PMO, 80 hours or more. Anything outside of that comes in through uh, the director level. Mick, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, so, so I think I'm, I'm seeing this, this interesting shift where I think that that kind of work intake doesn't fundamentally change, right? In the sense that you've got these larger projects, initiatives uh, that come in, the PMO is, is a key part of that. Um, now, in terms of uh, when the goals of writing project to product was to actually help organizations see, you know, not just that new work, not, not that project intake work, but to see all work that's needed to accelerate bringing offerings to market. So the thing that I realized is, you know, things I noticed, and this really this, this discrepancy between tech companies and the way that they manage their intake and flow of work and value delivery, uh, and the way that more traditional organizations manage the flow of delivery, in, in the more traditional project-oriented model, a lot of the work being done was not visible to leadership. So just as an example, uh, work on technical debt. We know that a lot of our platforms are using, you know, some, there's some legacy databases and back office systems and these kinds of things. And developers, if we actually, I, I spent a lot of time measuring uh, the flow of value and, and measuring for project to product for the book. Uh, it was 308 organizations value streams that we measured. And we noticed that there's, you know, there's this work, there's this intake of all this planned work that's being, as, as you just described, carefully prioritized and managed. Uh, and the sort of, the, when you actually look at the output of the work, what's actually being delivered to the customer, that only a portion of that was that planned work. So where did the rest of the capacity go? Was it all wasted? Was other work being done? And so I realized in measuring these value streams that there were these other kinds of work that were just invisible. So for example, developers, you know, uh, spending time and some of your contractors and some other IT practitioners dealing with technical debt, dealing with those legacy systems. That work was not visible, it was not being planned, it was actually not showing up on, on the project plans. And so what I did is introduce something uh, for, I think the overall ideas is that value stream management allows you to see and manage all work and to actually understand uh, when I created with the flow frameworks, this notion of flow metrics, where at a conceptual level, you can track both the flow of those projects, which the PMO is pretty good at today, but the flow of things that don't show up, such as, and you just mentioned this, um, Mike, that it's, so incidents and service requests and outages and those kinds of things. Well, how, how much is being invested in each value stream on outages versus, versus project work versus the plan work? So the idea of the flow framework is that there, there are actually four flow items that encapsulate all work, all capacity that's being used, all investment across your value streams. And these are features, net new things that you're adding. That's that's coming really through that project work. Those things that take, you know, will take, say, over 80 hours. Uh, defect, that's all the rework that's necessary. Uh, and that's all the quality work that's needed that tends not to be prioritized by the PMO because you, they don't have anything to prioritize until something goes wrong. Um, risks. And risks are, are sort of a key contribution of the flow framework because uh, software, as it's you know, running our hospitals, it's, it's running our, our services and our offerings, uh, risk work encapsulates all security, data privacy, regulation, compliance work. And we need to make that first class as well. It can't happen that you know, mid-quarter some audit happened and all of a sudden the teams can, can't get any of that project work done. Right? because we didn't properly plan for the outcome of an audit or the unplanned work that comes, comes out of an audit or something of that sort, or we didn't properly invest in security or data privacy and it, and it created too big a, a, a surface area for, um, for, for security incidents and threats. And then finally, there's debt work. So it's features, defects, risks, and debts. And the idea is that we elevate all this work. We can see all this work in our value streams and we can see, for example, how much are we investing in quality versus that project work that's going to make our associates or our customers or... or, or um, or, or other stakeholders' lives easier. So that's really been been my approach is to uh, help at a conceptual level. And, and the Flow Framework is, is just out there. It's open. It's Creative Commons licensed. Uh, you can check it out on flowframework.org. It's to, to help elevate the same kind of discipline and rigor that we have for some of that project work for all the other kinds of work that's that's actually turns out for most organizations takes more than three quarters of the capacity of their value streams, which is why everyone's so frustrated the project work doesn't doesn't get out quickly enough. So. Right. 
Well, let's talk about that. Neil, let me get your thoughts. Do you feel like um, there's a lot of effort that's being expended by the IT department that isn't captured and communicated as value? So we're we're saying we did A, B, and C, and people go, well, that's great, but you got a lot of people. But you're like, well, we did a lot more than that, but it's hard to explain it. Yeah, I mean, we tend to bundle that into whether you want to call it overhead or maintenance uh, as we look at how we allocate our staff. And so a large portion of their time goes to maintaining the environment, whether that is resolving technical issues or upgrades and enhancements that are, are scheduled, et cetera. And so we, we don't really actively communicate that other than to say, when we say our bandwidth is X, it is the remaining portion of the time that is available after all of that required work is accounted for. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in our organization, they understand that, but you're right. I mean, they look at a size of our staff. We have about 575 budgeted FTEs at HMH for IT. And, you know, it, it's a, I think it's valuable for us to be able to demonstrate more clearly what goes into that bucket of maintenance. We don't necessarily actively do that. Mike, where, where, what do you think? Yeah. Uh, utilizing the concept of run and maintain is takes up a, a fairly significant portion of our resources. And that's just the way it is. Uh, and what you have remaining, you can put on new projects. Um, what I do think is important though, is we do go to the granular level with our employee base to understand what they're planning for each week and utilize whatever tool it might be, project server or whatever, to understand um, what's, going forward uh, on their, uh, their docket, and then looking back historically to see where they've been spending time and then how we can make adjustments. I think the key to it is, in this day and age, every project requires multiple disciplines in order to successfully complete. And so you're only as strong as your weakest link or least capacity-oriented link. Um, and that's really the value of our project management office to align the resources. So if you need a developer, you need an integration resource, you need a project manager, and you need a testing analyst. If you have three of those available, you're probably not moving forward on the product. You need four available at the same time. And then in alignment with operations, which in today's day and age is more difficult than ever with trying to address every challenge associated with COVID uh, that, that exists out there. So our, our clinical partners are enormously stretched um, and we've become further stretched also during these times, but being able to track and use data in order to plan your capacity and then delivery with expectation setting uh, is an ongoing challenge. Uh, but I think successfully, but you know, most organizations are able to muscle through it with some rough edges. Mick? Yeah, I think kind of I'll reflect on Mike's points first, right? Is I think it's it really is and the data's there, right? The data's in yep. your product server, the data's in your agile tool, like it's like Jira, Azure DevOps, your service desk, a service now is so the data is that the, the data's in the tools that that are being used to manage the work. So, and this is some of the realization that I had. And so Mike, some of what you've done is actually, you know, the fact that you're looking at that data historically, you're understanding that some of the biggest challenges are, are, are actually cross-functional. I think those are the kinds of insights that, that are so key. And in the end, and Neil, you know, relating back to what you said, you know, the, that's, in the end, there's, there's what I saw, everyone's allocating this much capacity maintenance work, right? I, I realized that, you know, it's, it's common to allocate 60, 70, 80% of capacity, depending on what industry you're in, depending what the, the nature of the uh, technologies you were working with, all this capacity was allocated to maintenance work. And coming from open source, coming from um, software startups that, that just didn't, and working with large technology companies, that just didn't seem right to me. I said, like, wh why are we allocating 70% to maintenance work? Can we look at that data and can we look at actually what would it take to have 50% capacity going to, to net new initiatives and net new work and net new business value? Um, and I know in my own company, 
because uh, you know, working with large companies in healthcare and other sectors, I realized that th th there's a ton going into maintenance work. And then I realized when I was looking at our own product value streams, our own software offerings, I would get, uh, you know, within our company, I'd get very unhappy if I saw any product value stream dipping below 50% net new work. So net, mm -hmm. net new business value. And, and, I, and especially for some of the uh, offerings that are sort of newer products, if it's below 80%, I'd get very unhappy. So yeah, I basically asked myself, how, how can we shift away from this? And I think the key thing, you know, so the key insight for me is that if we could, Mike, Mike, back to your point, this is really around these, what I consider these cross-functional product value streams, right? These things take more than a team. Sometimes it's a lot of outsourced or, or contractors that you have working on, on these things. It's, it becomes very cross-functional. Cross uh, but if we could just define those cross-functional team of teams levels value streams uh, and measure where that maintenance, maintenance work is going, we could actually unlock some insights, like some of those historical insights that you talk about, Mike. So uh, the way that, you know, you and for me in the end, because this is, this is a form, software is a form of manufacturing process. And every manufacturing process is about finding the constraint. That's a different manufacturing process because it's a creative one. Uh, it, it's not creating widgets. Um, it's, it's, it's actually creating intangible artifacts and cool features and things that, that deliver value to customers and, and clients and associates and clinics. Uh, but if we could all, if we could look at where the, for each product value stream, each part of your portfolio, if you could actually look at what the bottleneck was and you could see, okay, the bottleneck is actually in this legacy system. The bottleneck is in the fact that people can't get, or, or the developers can't get, get the right access to the right kind of data. Uh, and if we could say basically, well, we're always going to invest effort into where that bottleneck is uh, because that bottleneck is what's causing all that. And this is the interesting thing is it's those bottlenecks that tend to cause all that maintenance work. And so, for example, what we recommend to, to our customers and what we do internally ourselves is every every single release, every quarter, we prioritize the amount of technical debt reduction. So where the teams get to remove the things that impede their flow of value so they can get more project and feature work done. However, teams like to you know, build software just sometimes for software's sake. So every technical debt reduction has to basically come with a, with a hypothesis of how it's going to reduce future maintenance work or accelerate the flow of, of net new value to the customer. And, and then we check that every month, every release. It's a bit like that process that you're talk, talking about, Mike. But basically, to do that, you extract all the data, you look for what the bottlenecks are, and then you can really start moving that needle from 80 or 70 or 60% uh, maintenance work to and shifting it over to the majority of your capacity going to, to net new business value. So. Mike, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what, what Mick's saying. Yeah, I, I, I think... The challenge, you know, we have to, most organizations have structure in place. We're by nature, we're analytical type folks, right? We grow up with, generally speaking, computer science, finance backgrounds. We're, we're analytical in nature, whatever side of the brain. Yeah, right. Is, yeah, <laughs> that, that's what we are. And, and so we believe in structure and we believe in organization uh, where we get hit on, on challenges is when that unforeseen priority jumps into the mix. And so you have four or five people on a project and then suddenly you need to pull out one or two to go to that special hot project. And I looked at the participant list and I know there's some present and former CIOs on, on the call uh, also. And, you know, we've all been there. It happens all the time. And that sort of sets you off and now you have to be nimble and flexible. And again, I look at our processes and I look at our PMO to help with that uh, balancing act. The other thing I would say, and why I mentioned the, the former and present CIOs is prioritization is critical in, in meeting the, the goals of what Mick is, is indicating. You need to have clear direction. Yeah, you need to have unwavering support from your leadership. And if there is, you know, one of these unforeseen projects thrown in, it's at the expense of something else so that you can keep this funnel moving. Mm -hmm. The worst thing we have ever done, you know, to our staff is saying, well, you need to do this unforeseen project and keep mm -hmm. them rolling on this other one and this other, it, it, it'll burn you out. It's um, not effective leadership. 
and the relationship with senior leadership is so important. And, you know, I've been here a bunch of years now and I never really understood that. So for those that are thinking of being in the CIO role, you got to have the unwavering support uh, of your uh, executive team. Otherwise, it just it, it just doesn't work. So, Neil, what Mike's saying is you have to have the support of your executive team not to shove work into the IT system that at that time cannot handle that additional work. When it's not, we'll do this instead of that, you're going to do this and that, like he said. Yeah, right. um, how much How much is that a part of your job, making sure the system, so to speak, doesn't get overloaded with work? I think that's the job of all of us at the IT leadership level. And it is, I, I believe, one of our greatest challenges because in growing organizations, I'm sure Penn Medicine is growing rapidly, we're growing rapidly. Uh, the demands are not neatly packaged in these one-year planning horizons or two-year planning horizons. Things are evolving rapidly. And for us, our key challenge is how do we maintain that awareness of the pipeline with our senior leadership, meaning not senior IT leadership, but senior operational leadership, so they can make those value judgments that Mike has talked about, where when that emergency comes in, what's the thing that has to give or what's the thing they're willing to give to allow us to manage the pipeline effectively. Um, and, you know, we're we're emerging, uh, evolving as a PMO. We're sort of young as a four and a half year old company kind of bringing this all together. So it's a work in progress for us. Uh, we do have the support of our senior leadership. And we're fortunate that we do have that. But we also have a huge demand in terms of projects that are uh, on dock. And uh, it is a just an ongoing challenge to keep that moving. And, and you know, to what Mick was saying about the trying to reduce the technical debt and the maintenance part. I mean, I'd love to hear more about thoughts on how that gets done. And even from Mike, how that might get done, because what I see is the weight of the maintenance on some of these larger systems like our EMRs and our ERP systems is such that you know, I'm not sure how we get from 70%, uh, you know, run and maintain down to 50%. Uh, I think it's a great goal, but I'm not clear on how I see that happening. I, I think we're still working with that 30, 35% capacity for new projects as, as what we have. Mick? Yeah, so I think kind of a few things there to touch on. Um, I can actually, and there's, there's a question from the Q&A, which will involve me giving a, a very brief plug for <laughs> task ops offerings, because what, and then, and then I can actually use some of what we found through our offerings to, to, to address this topic. But yeah, task up creates software. It's a software platform that allows you to define and then measure flow in, in your software value streams across however complex uh, your tool chains are. So sort of the ERP for software delivery, uh, since you know, you're bringing up ERP. Um, the so what we've done is we've been and this has been interesting because we're talking about this 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 topic of prioritization and overload that Mike's bringing up um, over the past year so basically since the start of the pandemic uh, we've we measured large and mid-sized organizations software value streams so we understand the flow of work we understand the exact ratio of how much is going into this maintenance and this rework how much into unplanned work how much is actually being proactively invested in technical debt and and project and new initiative work and so on and we've seen for a lot of large organizations so we well, as one of the flow metrics uh, that you'd see on the flow framework is uh, is flow load and then flow load is how much work has been put on a set of teams, a product value stream. And it's, work in, it's a work in progress metric. We know from manufacturing, you put too much work in progress onto an assembly line and throughput goes down, not up, if you overload things over 80% because of some of what we're saying on this panel here, which is it's that unplanned work coming in. There's no more capacity for mm -hmm. it. Once overload happens, uh, thrashing starts happening. So on the this, we've seen this as basically a, Across organizations, the amount of flow load that's too high for teams to handle is has just become endemic across across our customer base uh, to the point where this was actually stated publicly on my podcast, on the Project to Product podcast, that when the transformation executives, leaders at, at Lloyds Bank, uh, he said that post-COVID, he saw their, their 
flow efficiency, this is the ratio of where things are being actively worked on to stalled and waiting, where wait states are the kiss of death for any value stream, uh, drop down to 1%, right? Where I panic if I see our value streams drop down to below 50 or 60%. Uh, and that's that actually happened because of all this overload on the teams with all this new work coming in, all this urgent work coming in, and then all of a sudden, even less is coming out. So I think what Mike said is one of our, you know, the key weapons against that is that business level prioritization. But it, it becomes very difficult when you don't actually have a very clear sense of capacity, especially capacity for different kinds of work, or how much of that unplanned work will come in. So I think that you know the key thing that I've learned through this is and is that basically having a, a data-driven view, and this is all back to yes, us, us being kind of you know probably more analytical as you said, Mike, on this panel, but and data-driven, but a data-driven view of what's our current capacity when we actually invested into uh reducing some of the technical data of the EMR system, did did we you know, did things improve? Did they did they not improve? And just continually having visibility into what's happening. And one of the main things, by the way, that I've seen as a as as a uh, uh, as an effective navigation and as an effective uh, a way of addressing what's happening is is yeah, ruthless prioritization mm-hmm. and reduction of work in progress on value streams. Teams teams are being asked to do too much, uh, and they're getting less done as a result. So that's one of the data driven outcomes that. That we've actually been able to establish, uh, and it's it's just the case ac- across most organizations. You know, not everywhere. You might have some greenfields team working over here and on a new digital web app or something of or mobile app or something of that sort, and they not yet inundated with all that you know basically all that maintenance, all the content text switching while they're trying to uh, bring those new new projects initiatives to market. So, well, Mick, um, maybe can you touch a little bit more on Neil's question about how you actually get the the uh, maintenance costs, so to speak, down, you know, if they're 50, 60, 70 percent, it yeah. makes me think of being house poor, right? You yeah. buy a house and all the money's going to your mortgage and you can't do much after that. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think as Neil, as you said, Neil, it's it's not easy, right? So this is the, uh, these are complex systems, a lot of different integrations, a lot of potentially customizations, again, depending how your, uh, how your business works. So, so, it's the, I think we just have to accept it's not easy. And then it's not easy for the teams doing this because again, they're being asked to handle new work while dealing with all of that, you know, everything that's, that that's there in these systems today. So I think we need to accept that. And then where I've seen it done successfully is, you know, to basically, to make sure that it's, you've got a data driven way of, of finding your bottleneck and applying resources to that bottleneck. So for, you know, let's say you've got, you know, I, I am working with a customer who's doing a, a transformation of their EMR systems. So they've been able to look at where, what, where are the most wait states on work that's going through these EMR systems. So imagine that that project work that you're taking, prioritizing with a PMO, where does it get stuck? Does it get stuck on an external partner? Does it get stuck on, you know, on some part of the legacy system? Where does it get stuck? Because if we can just actually reliably see, and this is where the PMO can help, if the PMO's has a way of looking not through the rear view on, on what things were off track or delivered late by looking through the windshield uh, and seeing, okay, well, when we do this kind of work, it's probably going to get stuck here. And this is really where we need to augment capacity or uh, reapply capacity. But to understand again, and it's it really the interesting thing that I've, I've, I've noticed as well is it'll be different for different parts of your portfolio, right? For the EMR system, it could be a very different bottleneck. Um, than, than for some of your other systems. So I think that's really the key thing is to have a measurable, reliable way of, of measuring flow and then understanding where the bottleneck is as a business and technology level, because sometimes it'll be that it's, it's incredible actually how often the, the bottleneck will be outside of the development teams or of the technology teams, because they're always stuck waiting on something coming, you know, some new requirement or um or, or, or as, you know, security review or something of that coming in. So it's to really, yeah, understand where the bottleneck is. Always invest resources at that bottleneck, and then to measure that whether that worked, whether that that increased flow. So no silver bullet, but again, that same approach that worked for you know manufacturing supply chains, applying that to your to your technology. So and Mike, Vic, go ahead, go ahead. Um, Anthony, I think you said up front, you know, how, how do you change the percentage? And, you know, one of the simplest ways I think would be just change the denominator, right? Add more people. <laughs> and, you know, then 
your ratio adjusts, but you know, we happen to work in healthcare where you know the budgets for IT tend to be three to four percent of net patient revenue, unlike finance, unlike banking, uh, and others. So, you know, Mick hit the nail on the head and I think you need to address the issue at the root, which is, and the source, which is uh, ruthless prioritization. And right up front, you know, be able to have the tools available and the visibility to leadership as to this is what we can commit to and this is what we can't, recognizing that there's going to be some unforeseen things uh, that take place. And, and so that to me is mission critical. I think the second thing is, Nick, you hit on it, you know, you, you commit to the initial deliverable and then there's nine more iterations downstream of enhancements that, that are required. And that is either has to be built into the plan or it becomes a separate project. Again, expectation setting, you've delivered 80% of what they really wanted because they didn't know they needed the other 20, but now how do you help them get there? Um, and then the third thing I would say, and this is something that um, I've shared with many others, is you, you consistently and constantly have to be reminding leadership of your successes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we put together a every two years a benefits realization booklet that looks at our, you know, I'll call them marquee projects. We pick 20 to 25. And then what was the expectation of value? And then what was delivered? And we publish it. We put it in a nice printout, uh, you know, binded, and, and we leave it in leader, uh, leadership's uh, suites <laughs> so that they, because people forget. It's, you know, I'm sure, Neil, the, you've had five big successes in the last 60 days, but they only remember the last one. And it's just the nature, and it's the same, I'm sure, on the clinical side, on the administrative side. It, it's just human nature at this point. But, you know, running at 3% net patient revenue sort of puts you behind the eight ball and forces that ruthless prioritization, which I think uh, you, you well call out. Neil, so it's interesting, right? So if if the the, the worst case scenario or the ultimate the ultimate uh, point you don't want to be at is to say no, right? Nobody wants to say no. You don't want to say no. It's always what we always hear IT leaders saying, don't say no, say, tell me what you need and we'll figure out how to help you, right? So that's the, the last case scenario. That's what we don't want to say no. But if we want to be in a position to say no, if we have to, we have to address some of the things Mick's been talking about, which is one, you have to understand your capacity, right? So what are we capable of? What is the body of work that the system is capable of? And then also what Mick is talking about is know your bottlenecks. So what is what is the body of work we can accomplish? And then are there any points that are holding us back that are making us not operate efficiently? So it's almost like first you have to get your house in order. You have to know what you're capable of and make sure you're running efficiently. Then what Mike was saying about ruthless prioritization, and then it's after all that is done, if they're going to load on work that'll break the system, you have to have the courage to say no. Does that make mm -hmm. any sense? It does. Uh, and I think Mike, I'm sure, faces this all the time, too. We say no a lot. We have to because our resources are constrained. And when you have leadership support, they understand that. Doesn't mean everybody loves it. And certainly <laughs> within leadership, uh, people have their... I'll call them pet priorities that may not have gone through the normal channels that we've established for structure. You know, the sort of surprises that come up every, uh, well, consistently, I don't want to say on a particular cycle, right? But those are the things we have to react to. And the prioritization is such an important part of that. We do struggle with that in growing organizations, though, because the growth is such a driver of, of business need that they need to then be able to translate that back to what the IT support requirements are. And we have to show them that, look, this is our capacity. And if you want to go above the capacity, either to Mike's point, you've got to ramp up and add more people. And that doesn't have to be permanent. It can be contractors or whatever is necessary to get that job done. But that's part of our task. And we, we do communicate that. 
that this is this is our capacity. If you want to go above, here's what it'll take for us to then do that. And sometimes we get the approval to do that. Other times they have to make business decisions where they say, okay, we're going to wait, you know, prioritize this later in the cycle than when you have capacity. But it is our ongoing challenge. So, Mike, uh, it's interesting. Um, we talked about your reports and the reports you deliver to demonstrate and to communicate the value that you feel you're delivering to the organization. Well, Neil's talking about leadership support, and what that means is trust, right? That's, sure. That means that the leadership trusts you that when you talk about capacity, they can believe you. And it's not like, oh, Mike's got another 20, 30%. He's always just covering his butt <laughs> so he can come through in the end to be a hero, right? I mean, a lot of that is trust between you and the other leadership. So when you say, hey, we're at capacity, they believe you. For, for sure. And it's why you need to be an integral part of the executive leadership team, why you need to be there through thick and thin, and um, why you need to be transparent. In, in your team's activities, um, successes or, or non-successes. Um, and to the point of saying no, uh, I think we all say no, but um, I've been coached by folks a lot smarter than me to make sure it's just not me saying no. And that's where, again, to your point, Anthony, the, the collaboration with senior leadership, we have a project prioritization committee that looks at burning platform topics. And we say they need to be addressed. And then the concept of um, corporate IS being a free good to the general population, you know, that, that's that been the, the, the thought process. But if that's the thought process, then everybody just reaches out and wants a piece of it. <laughs> it needs to be that funnel and that prioritization and that collective effort. Um, and, you know, we're spending a lot of time on prioritization and, and structure, but you know, I think mixed point is, you know, there are methods to eliminate some of the bottlenecks uh, once you get into the project so you can have things flow through faster. And I think one of the, you know, methods that we found and particularly in our software development team is, um, you know, as everyone's doing more of an agile approach, which is every two weeks we're going to deliver something. So it's not the final product, but at least you see we're making some progress along the way. It might be a flow chart, it might be a PowerPoint, it might be a design, it, and, and it keeps the ball rolling and keeps people engaged. And um, I, I gotta tell you, I, I know there have been methodologies all developed throughout my career, and I just like roll my eyes, like here's yet another, you know, met, but uh, this really works. And our, our, I'm surprised at how, engaged our end user base has become when they can see something every few weeks versus waiting until four months when the project was due to be done. Mick? Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly key, right? Is in the end, I, I do want to start actually, Anthony, with your point, because I think we, we, there's just this tension that, that all of us deal with, right? Is that, you know, we're, we're not wanting to say no, we're having to say no, and it's saying no to the business and then in the end to the customer. And having, uh, for most organizations, having an accurate view of capacity of, of what exactly the capacity is going to be for the next, for, you know, for the next release, for the next cycle is extremely difficult. So the reason these agile methodologies, and as you say, Mike, they, they, they've been popular is because when you've got something as complex as, you know, dealing with legacy systems, dealing with the complexity of VMR systems and wanting to deliver sort of new innovation and, and new work, uh, it's for the PMO for everyone. It's it's extremely difficult to understand go forward capacity. So, and I think we do have a pretty. I think again, this still the ruthless prioritization needs to remain, right? Because I think most of us know intuitively we're over capacity, and, and we see that. Um, the question is how when what can we say yes to? How much new unplanned work will come in and such? So the the whole point of these agile methods, and in the end, that the flow framework is really just a layer, a business layer above the agile framework. That's, that's all it is, right? Is is it's a way of elevating? Agile frameworks tend to be very they're they're critical to how teams prioritize because teams have to prioritize at a very fine grained level, uh, and they really should be prioritizing on on business priorities, on north stars that are set on them for for customer results and outcomes and clinics and the like. So, um, the 
all really the flow framework says is, okay, we need to apply that same thing that works that you're seeing work, Mike, for your agile teams and your customers who are seeing faster feedback. We need to apply that to the planning cycle. Yeah. We need to understand, and, and we need to have this, this two week, this one month and this, this quarterly way of planning being very iterative around our capacity. Because uh, as I think that, you know, Neil, Mike, as we've all said here is, Unplanned things will happen. They cause all these overloads. So if we can just get more iterative and more data-driven on what our capacity is, we will actually know that when we reduced work, oh, we actually had a bit more capacity than we expected. Maybe we can actually load up the teams a bit more. And again, it's it's just applying those same agile principles. And I, I want to, as part of this, I want to relate, you know, Mike, you said celebrating successes. I think this was uh, when I actually wrote the book, I think I sort of underappreciated how critical that was. One of the most powerful things I've seen in terms of getting the, um, you know, because when you've got, when you're having to say no to leadership, again, it's, it's, it's painful. When you're having to say no to business partners, it's, it's painful. We all want to deliver more and not be the bottleneck. And I actually think it is a bit more to your point of the proportional IT investment. It is a bit more painful in healthcare is what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. Then, like you said, in financial services where the IT budgets are just a massive proportion of, of revenues um, or in some other domains. But I think that, so the key thing is, is that, you know, given we've got sort of effectively, you're starting with, you know, and organizations are growing, so you'll have some growth, but uh, basically some of the most powerful stories I've heard is where a, a, a part of the IT organization was able to, to say, we were able to, we would be able to bring that. So that, let's say that 80 plus, those units that you product work, we reduced the time to market of that by 20% last quarter. As soon as you say, like, as soon as that success story goes to leadership, that that's it becomes transformational because everyone wants to know, how did you do that? What did you do? Like, did you did? Yeah, we didn't unlock all those hires. You know, we didn't give you budget for all those hires. What that, that you said that, you know, that, that were needed yesterday. Um, but how did you do it and what did you do? If you can actually position uh, sort of successes in the terms of those, you know, Mike, like you said, customers are now more engaged and more happy because they're getting things more quickly. They're actually part of the feedback loop, the design loop of, of these new products. Uh, if you can measure how flow improved through some of the initiatives that you took, whether it's with existing staff and cost structures or with new, you know, making the case for, um, for new budget, I think the subbing the successes in terms of, accelerated flow and how that's driving business and customer outcomes is 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 what's so powerful and it is what gets the organization thinking the right way uh, in terms of empowering technology and IT leaders to make the right decisions, allow the, the teams to make the right decisions to drive more outcomes. So I think measuring flow, celebrating improvements in flow, highlighting the problems. In the end, if you've got a massive bottleneck on a legacy system, senior like senior leadership needs to understand what that is. Right. Everyone, people need to stop ignoring it because if that's what's or, or a contract relationship or a partnership, um, that that's you know putting a lot of strain on the teams. I think both elevating the successes and the bottlenecks uh, is a recipe for success. So, all right, very good. We're going to do ask a co-panelist, Mick. I'm going to let you go first. You have a question for one or both of your co-panelists. Yeah. So I guess as as you look ahead, um, how are you? And I think the you know the point of the of the, the seat at the table that uh, that you made, Mike. Um, how how have you been doing that? How have you been getting leadership engaged? And I think the, the booklets are one thing. That's good. good that, <laughs> that's good that you're distributing. But in terms of the actual planning, and as you look ahead uh, for the rest of 2021, what are you doing um, to keep leadership actively engaged in some of your initiatives, some of your challenges, and, and some of your successes? Yeah, I think I've always viewed our IS team to um, enable the business strategy. And I think that's a wise way to approach things. Um, And so by that approach, you, you know, have to stay engaged. You're, you're part of the the planning effort. You know what the expectations are, and then you're constantly providing feedback as to where your successes uh, and challenges may be. What, what I think is interesting and, you know, would ask Neil to also comment on is um, th- these have been really challenging times the last 12 plus months for specifically for healthcare. So, Mick, you have a good view of multiple industries. Um, and so to be able to battle through what I call, you know, every seemed like every week was a new chapter of the challenge from you know just identifying and getting your analytics spin up spin up and your your frontline workers safe and cared for 
um, all enabled by IS in some way, shape, or form, to eventually getting through testing and resurging back your your surgeries and and your volumes and people coming back to the hospitals and you know ultimately getting to uh, vaccines and you know dealing with the second wave and vaccines. Uh, if you're not an integral part of the senior leadership team, um, they're going to be not well informed. They're going to be poorly informed to make their business decisions. And so, you know, how do you do it? You, you have to be present. You have to build trust. You have to have, you know, it's hard. I think Neil's relatively new and uh, it's hard, you know, to build up that confidence uh, in the leadership. But uh, those are the ways that we've done it. Neil? Yeah, I mean, I think Mike is spot on. The, the challenges really are making sure you are at the, the various tables, right? Because the planning is happening at all different levels. And over the last year, uh, we basically had to suspend those flows that Mike is talking about, uh, Mick is talking about, sorry, uh, with, with all of that in-process stuff we were normally slated to do to <clears throat> shift gears, to move 7,000 back office workers to be remote and to then find ways to actually repurpose entire units in the hospital that weren't meant to care for patients a certain way to now go to critical care units and all that. And so these these value streams uh, are things that we were able to pivot and deliver very quickly, but we wouldn't have been able to do that if we weren't sitting at the table side by side with operations. So they understood what was involved in setting up you know, a pop-up vaccine clinic now in a church, right? <laughs> and all of the things that go with that. And and part of our challenge is now trying to institutionalize some of those things because we are now learning that this may be, a, a, these many of these things will have to be repeatable. So it's not like a one-off kind of event. So it, it's a very interesting time for us. We, we've learned a lot of things about how we work as teams, uh, and I certainly think that looking forward uh, to Mick's point, how we're going to work for the next 12 months will be very interesting. I think it'll be different from how we've worked in the past. I like the idea of the overall value stream. I'm still struggling a little bit with how you really measure some of these things. Some things are very clear in terms of what you can track in your project management systems and other things, but you know, other things... I still struggle with, and particularly, I think Mike made the point of, of the drop-in kind of stuff that happens. How do you really react to that in a timely way? Uh, I, I believe we've got I, uh, leadership's trust. IT has that, but I think leadership has also seen us deliver in tight timeframes and under pressure, and so it's adjusted that expectation to a certain level that sometimes people fear is unsustainable. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd love to hear more from Mick about how the tools can be used to, to demonstrate that a little bit more clearly, because sometimes I feel like we're a victim of our own success. And it's just so interesting, right? Is that I think leadership, the pandemic has actually helped get leadership more engaged because as you said, Mike, everything is, is uh, moved very quickly. IS supported all of it. And and what your teams did was was some amazing work. And that, yeah, now Neil, it's that's right. I'm seeing this all over the place. Is it's the the it's this notion of being a victim of your own success. So, yeah, I mean, my, again, my view on it is just to augment the the project management tooling with value stream management tooling, and to help you know to help your teams understand the prioritization of that capacity, and in the end to to keep an active discussion and, and it just a much to keep that frequency of discussion. Maybe it won't be weekly when everything was an emergency week to week um, because that is unsustainable for the teams. I just, uh, you know, I'm here in, in uh, British Columbia in Canada. And uh, last Friday I was on a call with teams who were, you know, they're, they're doing the immunization campaign that all the information systems for that they had not, they've worked 15 hour days, seven days a week. And it was week three. Right, and it's it's it, we know that's unsustainable, right? That they they don't yet know the effects of that in terms of how the flow of those teams and their engagement will actually be affected post that, right? So I think it, it's now time to find that balance and just to become very deliberate and data driven around it because 
you know, I think you've seen your teams just do amazing things. Uh, and now it's, you know, time to get to that, that to a sustainable and, um, and scalable level and, and, and in a way where the, the business understands that capacity and, and can plan around it. So I think a lot of what you're doing is there and it's yeah, just a matter of getting just more data into, into your, into the decision-making is my view. So. All right. Well, we're running short on time, but I want to go to uh, Mike for a final thought. Mike, you had mentioned some of the CIOs and former CIOs on the line. Obviously, it's an issue uh, people are, are are struggling with and, and working on and coming up with some solutions. And, and Mick and his organization have some tools to assist people. But your overall advice for uh, those that maybe don't have as much experience as you do in dealing with this, this issue. Yeah, I think... Perhaps the most important role for us as leaders is to pave the way for our staff uh, and be there with our staff for them to successfully get their work completed. And as mentioned in this discussion, sometimes that means some tough discussions. Uh, that means putting some things to the side, but you know, really leadership is representing your team uh, and ensuring they can be successful. And um, if we can accomplish that, you know, people work in healthcare for a variety of reasons, but the primary reason is they believe in the mission. They believe in giving something back and doing something a little bit above and beyond a quarterly dividend or financial report or whatever. And, and so they'll, they'll extend it. Uh, and, you know, I know members of all of our teams are really proud when they say, I made the adjustments to that EMR to support the new ward that opened to support COVID patients, because that was, that was better. We, we need to be paving the way for that. It doesn't involve a lot of technical acumen. It doesn't involve a lot of uh, programmatic types of things, but it does involve leadership and paving that way and let folks do what they do best. Um, and that's deliver. Well said. Well said, Mike. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. Um, regarding continuing education, uh, you can use the final slide in this deck. You will get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team. You go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our panel, this has been a tremendous conversation. we covered a lot of area. I think it's been extremely valuable. Mike Restuccia, Neil Ganguly, and Mick Kirsten. I want to thank Testop for making this event possible. And I want to thank our attendees for coming. With that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.